Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. We, we can't be sure, for instance, that there wasn't some sort of major cataclysmic event. In fact, quite the opposite. The evidence would show that there was. Mike Bailey of Queen's University, who's the dendrochronologist, who's he and his colleagues. But they've uh, identified six major tree narrowing, tree ring narrowing events, which absolutely would have caused chaos and devastation. Hello and welcome to A Life in Dublin. I'm your host Mark and with your permission we'd love this podcast to be your digital companion for the next little bit at least. Anthony Murphy is an expert in the field of ancient Ireland and has written many books on the subject which you can find on his website Mythical Ireland. In this conversation we journey through what life would have been like in Ireland thousands of years ago. Who were the people who resided on this island? What did they believe? And what may their society have looked like? This was a dream conversation for me, and I know Anthony didn't have enough time to divulge even close to the amount of knowledge he has on this topic. For that reason, I really recommend checking out more of his content, which you can find links to in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening, commenting, sharing, and the words of encouragement you're sending us as I put out these episodes. This podcast has a small but growing community of listeners, and the reason it's growing is because of all of you who have shared it with a friend, sent us feedback, rated it, reviewed it, or even followed it on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Incredibly grateful, and thank you so much for sticking with us. But now, here's my conversation with Anthony. During the summer, so twice this month, the first one was last month, and just- Two this month and then two in August. How how did you first become, let's say, 
curious, like bring us back a, a number of years. Where did this initial curiosity to to ancient Ireland or mythical mythical Ireland come from? A great question. Um, actually, this whole thing began in childhood, believe it or not, through my own fascination with astronomy. I became hooked on astronomy as a, a child of seven or eight. I was enthralled by the night sky. I was throughout my childhood and adolescence uh, a keen observational astronomer um, when most people would have been what we call armchair astronomers, mm. very interested in reading the books, but not so interested in spending hours in the cold, especially in the winter under the mm-hmm. stars and 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 that was me and that was my mm. young life um uh what watched many astronomical events as a youngster and stayed up all night sometimes to watch i remember watching a total eclipse of the moon that lasted i think the maximum eclipse was at half two in the morning and i watched it from you know whatever from about 11 p.m until about 6 a.m that sort of thing so I I was deeply enthralled by the stars and everything else in the sky and the distances and the vastness of the universe, Mm. to be honest. Mm. So that was a pathway into the whole thing. Um, And then, you know, growing up in Drogheda during the 80s, a lot of headlines were published about the excavations at Brunabonia, particularly now in the 80s at that stage the excavations of Newgrange were pretty much wound down um, and the revelations of those excavations were again amazing we learned that we had the largest Neolithic monuments in Ireland on our doorstep we learned that Nouth had more megalithic art than any other site in Europe we learned that it had uh, at that time. I think there were sixteen satellite mounds around it, and since then an- another two have been added. Um, I got to go to Newgrange and Douth on a school tour. I can't remember what year that was, but it was probably uh, in the mid nineteen eighties, and um, was just fascinated by all that. My father brought home a copy of George Ogan's book about mm-hmm. Nouth. I think that was published in 1986, so it would have, it would have been that year, and I commandeered it. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't couldn't believe what I was reading. But the second pathway, and probably the one that really led to Mythical Ireland and books and everything else, was later, in 1999, in January of that year, when a local artist who was known to me, his name is Richard Moore. Richard came into the office of the newspaper where I worked, which was the Drahad Independent. Mm. And uh, he, we, he and I had a conversation which basically led to everything that has happened since. He, he was asking all sorts of curious questions about, you know, the megalithic art of Nouth and what it might mean. And uh, he opened my eyes to the fact that there was a huge amount of mythology about the monuments, which I didn't know. And the reason he'd come to me in the first place was he wanted to learn more about astronomy. 
because he was convinced that the astronomy of the builders of Brunabonia was much more complex than a simple fascination with the sun, which yeah. obviously was very important to our farming culture of, of the Neolithic. But um, so when he started telling me the stories, my eyes lit up. I, I, I just couldn't believe that there was so much richness and that I had left school uh, in 1991, a long time ago now, um, mm-hmm. not knowing any of that. That yeah. you know that we had learned about Greek and Roman mythology, you know, in classical studies, and the Christian brothers had failed to tell us about our own mythology. Which that was one of the things I was actually going to say to you. So I, I kind of feel that we all, as as Irish people, and for people who listen to this podcast as well, who you know from outside of Ireland and they're trying to learn a little bit more about the culture and things like that, we. You know, we obviously and rightly so, we learn a lot about what happened in terms of colonization and maybe the Vikings before that and the the Battle of Independence. And, you know, we have it's good to obviously know why we have names called Connolly Station and O'Connell Street and all the rest of it. Um, so there's obviously no doubt how important that is. However, I feel like we we don't we have very little idea of what Ireland was like before all of that. Um, I've, I've spoken recently to to a couple of guests on the podcast about the revival of the Irish language um, and how people seem to be getting more interested in the etymology of these words. Where do they come from? Why do people say things this way? These the, the prepositions that are used in Irish are very much think something is at me, something is on me. It was a whole different way of thinking about life. And I think within the language and within as you say, monuments, there's these kind of secrets to be unlocked about what Ireland was and how the people were living at the time. I I read one of your books, uh, Land of the Ever Living Ones, which I really enjoyed, by the way, because I I love the reflection of kind of human psychology and and nature kind of reflecting off each other. It was brilliant. Um, There was a line in the book where you said there is a thin veil between this world and the other world especially in the most sacred places like Brunaboigna. Why do you think this place in Ireland, Brunaboigna or the, the, the Boyne Valley, the river Boyne, what is so sacred about it? Why were these monuments built there in the first place? I think, well, there's, first of all, beyond the sacredness, there's a practical element. <laughs> the, mm. the, so the practical uh, aspect of Brunabonia is the fact that it's located very close to one of Ireland's main rivers and that that river in the Neolithic was tidal all the way up to Brunabonia long before the salmon weirs were built which interfered with the the uh, tidal nature of the river and, and that would have been it's been described by archaeologists as the M1 motorway of its day because that is the thing that allows the materials and the people to come in and out of Brunabonia. And the other practicality is the fact that it's located in the Boyne Valley, which is situated in the richest and most fertile and productive farmland in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So as a farming culture, it's not difficult to see why the megalithic uh, monuments uh, are the largest in Ireland and 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 where the culture seems to flourish there, where it hadn't flourished to quite the same extent in places like Sligo 
you yeah. know. Um, so the older monuments are in the west, uh, and Brunabonia are the young younger monuments. But by the time they get to Brunabonia, they're like figuring out that wow, you know what, this soil is wonderful. Uh, mm. we, we can grow a lot here and if we can grow a lot then that means we can have agricultural surplus which means we can build monuments but i think we it's not that we fail to appreciate but i think there's a lot of people today uh for whom sacredness of landscape passes them right by because it literally whizzes by their windows as they're driving to work or commuting to work on a train or a bus you know and how often have we recognized the fact that there is this, I don't know, I've I've been to several European countries and I've never quite felt that feeling elsewhere that I get in Ireland of this liminality. And the liminality is that, and it's difficult to uh, uh, vocalize because it's a, a sort of abstruse concept. It's this feeling that, as is encapsulated in so much of the mythology, that at any moment you would expect, you know, other worlds to, as it were, reveal themselves in this one. Mm. Um, and Brunabonia is one of those places where if you spend enough time there, you get that feeling uh, that you perhaps don't get in other places. But... I think part of the feeling of sacredness is the fact that people, you know, because you can see their monuments, you know that you're standing in the same places that people did over 5,000 years ago. And I think that adds an element mm. of sacredness that maybe is not present in a field on a hill somewhere else in Ireland where there are no monuments and there's nothing of particular significance from mm. from, from prehistory in terms of monumental architecture. Um, but then, you know, I, I've I've spent an awful lot of time over the years, uh, twilight time, you might call it, you know, mm. um, as a photographer, especially. And it gives you an appreciation for the colors and the hues and the moods of the place, uh, especially at those times when the tourists are not there, when the traffic is not there, when the landscape falls silent. Um, you know, when you hear the last blackbird singing out the evening and then you see the first bats appear, you hear the curlews calling, which is a very otherworldly sound, <laughs> uh, you know, and you feel sometimes as if you've been transported to a magical place. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's prevalent all in many, many places in Ireland uh, uh, and perhaps not so much in the more as it were, developed nations, the more, uh, you know, uh, and we are obviously, and we've seen a huge amount of development over the past few decades, but we still have, I think, that old rustic and rural sense of, you know, uh, a, a landscape that isn't always exactly what it seems. don't know if that explains it, but. 100%. And, and I agree because like, even I remember last year I did a I did a cycle around the ring of ring of Bera down in kind of the Cork Kerry border, and we we passed by a, a stone circle uh, just outside Kenmare, which just 
like withstanding the actual stone circle, we actually just stood there in the valley just because there was these two lakes that you could see from from where we were stood. And it was just the, the place had something special to it. There's no doubt about it. And I, you had the feeling that they, they have built this here for some reason, whether it be a sacred place, whether you just get a sense of tranquility here, whatever it might have been. I don't know. But yeah, you're 100 percent right in, in the sense that I, there is something special to those places, whether it's because there's a monument there or not. I think people built the, those things there in the first place for a reason. Yeah, I mean, I would say Glendalough is one of those places. Now, Glen, mm. uh, the, the the problem with appreciating that at Glendalough is the huge number of people who are there, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's one of those remarkably naturally beautiful places where the monks obviously said, had a look around and said, you know, this is the kind of landscape where we could become seriously contemplative, you know, um, and, and, and it has that aura about it yeah uh like there are diverse places where you get a sense of something that is uh liminal and and something that is just naturally beautiful i mean there are places in connemara that are rugged and wild but you know excessively beautiful um mm, yeah. there i mean if you've been to sligo which Michael Quirk, the woodcarver in Sligo, who's a great storyteller, uh, says is the most fairy place in Ireland. You know, uh, and you go up to the Brickleave Mountains and the Carrowkeel Cairns, you, you get the sense of uh, an attempt by early communities to remove themselves from the the lower landscape, the Telluric plain, as it were, almost as if they're ascending towards something. You know, and a lot of these cairns and mounds are built on hills and mountaintops, which is an extraordinary feat in itself. Mm. And there you get greater views across the landscape, a much more extensive vista. And you get the feeling that that wasn't just a geographical, physical thing, that the extensive vista that was required in spiritual terms was uh, a, a, a vista over the human soul, you know. Mm. Um, they were very careful uh, to the point of meticulousness, it seems, about their choices choices of location. As it stands, Brunabonia is not particularly dramatic because, you know, there are low undulating hills and ridges. They're not mountaintops. They're not like Loch Crewe. In Meath, for instance, they're not like the Dublin and Wicklow Mountains where there are cairns on the tops of those. But it still has a peculiar uh, and singular presentation, as it were, because you've got this large river that loops around uh, the, the complex. But there's a natural promontory of land there that is enclosed, as it were, on three sides by the Boyne as it does this dramatic bend. You know, it's like... Mm. You know, of course, when you look at the geology and the topography, you understand why the river does what it does. Yeah. But to a more simple mindset, you just look at the map and go, why doesn't the river just flow east, you know, from from, <laughs> from Slane to Drogheda and into the sea? Why, why doesn't it just go straight, you know? Yeah. And instead, it flows straight east for a time after Slane and then suddenly dramatically turns south at Nouth. And around, you know, a, this gradual large loop and eventually then turns east again 
at Oldbridge heading for Drogheda and the sea, you know. Um, and it's almost as if somebody arrived there in prehistory, saw that there was no human settlement there and said, you know what, this looks like a very special place. And yeah. hey, we're serviced by this great river, you know. We can Amazing. get in and out of here quite easily, you know. Amazing, the M1, as you, as you called it. Yeah. Um, the From your research, what do we know? Like, what, For example, what do we know about the beliefs of of the type of people that were around at that time um brilliant question uh have you got all day <laughs> perhaps i do i know you don't but <laughs> yeah well i'm thinking about your listeners you know <laughs> um well okay so here's there is something that must be borne in mind when one explores uh, neolithic ireland we have no writing from that time we have megalithic art, which mm. in Ireland is um, almost painfully uh, abstract. Uh, <laughs> you know, you think you see suns and moons and stars and you think you see symbols that can be deciphered. But uh, oftentimes it laughs at you because, it, you know, it's like, well, you don't know whether this is true or not. <laughs> and you've yeah. no way of finding out, you know. So when you're exploring the Neolithic, you have uh, several things that can help you to build a picture. The monuments themselves, their position in the landscape, their orientations and alignments, the megalithic art that is inscribed upon them, and then something that is very difficult for scholars in particular to, to deal with is you have mythology about these sites, but the mythology was only written down in the Middle Ages, you know, it, mm. within, within the past 800 years. Um 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century AD. You have all this mythology written down mostly in uh, uh, Christian monasteries, mostly by ecclesiastical scribes, but some of the scribes were probably lay, some of the scribes were probably former bards or, or bards who were, you know, lo looking to, looking for the protection of the monasteries, as it were, in, mm. uh, in post uh, Anglo Norman invasion times. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So you can, I mean, I suppose when you look at the broad picture, it is clear at Brunabonia that there was a monumental, pardon the pun, a monumental <laughs> effort to yeah. express this human, uh, uh, this, this uh, human interaction with life and the world and the cosmos. And Nowhere else do you see it on such a scale. And it is quite clear now that a huge amount of people came into that part of, of what we now call Meath in prehistory uh, to engage in this monumental effort. And where you see monumental architecture, there is usually a spiritual uh, cause or a, a, a spiritual motivation for constructing vast monumental landscapes like what we have at Brunabonia. Uh, now, there are lots and lots of people in modern times who imagine um, a particular type of spirituality. So, you know, you'll, you, you'll encounter all sorts of spiritual practitioners and people of certain beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, and for them, you know, I suppose... <sighs> 
they don't always bear the facts in mind. You know, the facts are that uh, the monuments are principally burial places, which is why archaeologists call them passage tombs. But they weren't just burial places. They were clearly temples of some kind also. Um, and so you get all sorts of modern pagans who have borrowed um, their ideas from modern writings and sort of transplanted them onto these sites. Uh, myself, I tend to stand back a little bit. Uh, I, I, I don't have any particular, uh, I don't, I, I'm not religious as such. Mm. What, what I am is, uh, I'm, I am a spiritual person. I do find uh, these places to have a spiritual quality to them. But in the case of uh, Brunabonia, what is, I think, starting to resolve itself is the fact that there was probably a ruling dynasty there, you know, mm. uh, and that's something that people hadn't contemplated to any great extent before 2020 when it was revealed that a man who had been buried in the chamber of Newgrange 5,200 years ago had first wow. degree incestuous parentage. You know, in other words, his parents were probably brother and sister. Mm. And where you see that in combination with monumental architecture around the world, that usually indicates a highly stratified society. Look, mm. at the end of the day, it's helping to answer a question that has been asked for a long time. You know, why, were the great monuments of Brunabonia built by a people who were just unified in their beliefs, who came together, who 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 had this um, community vision, or were they influenced and coerced by uh, some people who maybe represented the upper echelons of society? And of course, it's looking like that because uh, as humans, we don't change all that much at the end yeah. of the day. Um, but I suppose one question is as to whether they were built with an element of zeal and uh, um, you know that idea of coming together, or whether uh, people were forced and coerced and were effectively slaves. Yeah, uh, and that may be dif more difficult to resolve, you know. Um, but so um, there is a certain sort of uh, bunch of people who are uh, quite romantic in their views. Of, ne of the Neolithic. But I think if they were transported back there in a time machine, they might get a few shocks, to say the least. I imagine so. Jeez, it wouldn't have just be amazing, though, if you had a time machine to go back and to, to see the lives of those people and to understand what, what they were all about and to understand them a little bit more. Uh, maybe, as you say, from, from a, a distance vantage point, so just in case you're in trouble of uh, getting in their way, yeah, but, uh, it would be fascinating to see. Um, I watched a documentary a while back, and um, I don't know if this is kind of a bit left of field or a little bit kind of pop, pop history or whatever you might want to call it. But it was a documentary, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, but it was the title of the documentary was "The Last Druid," and and he oh, said yeah. that he belonged. Have you seen it? Ben, was his name Bra Brady? Is it something like that? I yeah, think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's um, that is, yeah. What what are your like? I remember he was saying that these these uh, passage tombs were not really tombs; they were shelters or something like that from an apocalyptic event. Um, 
is this a totally out there theory that's not very widely accepted? Um, I think he specifically said that the tombs were shelters, were sheltering places from meteor storms, meteor yeah. showers, which is like truly quite ridiculous, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I watch, I've watched that. It's on YouTube and I can't yeah. take it seriously, you know. However, I mean, it's not all, all of that stuff is not necessarily left of field. I mean, mm. we, we can't be sure, for instance, that there wasn't uh, some sort of major cataclysmic event. In fact, quite the opposite. The evidence would show that there was. This is something that I haven't written about yet because I only interviewed uh, the specialist in question during the lockdowns. Mm. Um, and, and that is Mike Bailey of Queen's University, who's the dendrochronologist, who's he and his colleagues have spent a lifetime putting together a chronology of tree rings uh, from Irish bog oaks that stretches right back to about 7,400 years ago. I think wow. 5,400 BC, something like that. Wow. And they have identified a series of events in the tree ring chronology. There's quite a comprehensive article about this on my blog on, on the Mythical Ireland website. But they've identified six major tree narrowing, tree ring narrowing events, which absolutely would have caused chaos and devastation. The last of those events was centered on the year 540 AD, which curiously is a time when a number of things happened. In the wider world, we have the Justinian plague, which apparently ended up wiping out about one third of Europe's population. In the Irish wow. annals, we have a mention of failure of bread, which is a curious way of saying that the wheat crop failed, basically failed mm. to grow. Um, and we also have a huge spike, a huge sudden upward uh, spike in the number of churches being built in Ireland, which was a fairly low or flat, almost flat increase from the 5th century, from the time of of, of St. Patrick and, and the alleged arrival of Christianity into Ireland just over a century earlier. Um, but the first of the six events, the first of the six events is centered on the year 3195 BC, 3195 BC, precisely the age, the era in which we are told uh, the great monuments of Brunaponia were being built. Wow. Now, the, the carbon dates for monuments come with a caveat, which is they, they're not a precise date. They usually have a plus or minus 50 years or plus or minus a century. Yeah. You know, uh, of course. it's not it's not like we can say that Newgrange was built in 3201 BC on mm. the 5th of June at three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, it's not, it doesn't come with that sort of precision. But it is interesting that uh, the largest passage tombs in Ireland and some of the largest and grandest in Europe are, are, are being built uh, apparently at a time when there was a severe uh, climate event, which Mike Bailey describes. He says if any of those events happened now, they would be what he calls uh, civilization stopping events. Now, not civilization ending events, civilization stopping events. Events when basically we are at the whim of nature uh, and continue to be. Yeah. Uh, it was initially thought that maybe some comet 
fragments or some large asteroid impacts had caused uh, a huge level of dust to enter the atmosphere. But but uh, I think uh, Bailey and his colleagues have looked at ice cores from Greenland, etc. And they've seen sulfur deposits that suggest that, in fact, at least some of these events were volcanic in origin. So probably wow. what you have is the eruption of several large volcanoes around the world simultaneously happening at the yeah. same time, spewing large amounts of dust into the atmosphere, cloaking the sun uh, and cooling everything down and preventing things from growing for a period of wow. years. This, you know, yeah. from an anything, I think these events last, you know, from five to 20 years. And you can imagine what it must be like on Earth uh, or what it must have been like on Earth during those events. It doesn't bear thinking about in a modern context because the Neolithic population of Ireland was probably somewhere in the region of ten to 50,000 people. You know, uh, it can't have been much more than that. Uh, really, um, that's that's much smaller than I thought, thought it would have been, but interesting, that's crazy. So when you think about it, um, you know, that's the population of a small town. Uh, yeah. Small, a small to medium-sized uh, modern town. You know, and there's five million people now, <laughs> you know, in the Republic. I think, is there another million in Northern Ireland? About Something like that. Yeah. People on the island now, you know. But you can imagine if if those type of, let's say, events were happening even recently, even in more recent times after the pandemic. But you can you can sense that people are going to be looking to something external, aren't they? They're going to be looking, to, when you don't understand something, don't understand why it's happening, of course you're going to look to the stars, look to the gods, look to whatever it, it is that you might be, have a spirituality about. So it makes sense that something like these these monuments were built around that time. Well, I wonder if there aren't parallels to be made between the first and last of those six events. The, the Neolithic event, uh, when we happen to see the construction of these huge monuments and the 540 AD event when we see a steep rise in the number of churches being built where people are clearly saying, oh, God help us, you know, literally God help us. Uh, and, and and of course, in the mythology of Newgrange, Dagda, who is dis a distinct sun god because of his, it says that he, you know, it is said that he controlled the weather and the harvest. He's Gerald Dirk, the red-eyed, he's the one who enters into Newgrange uh, to impregnate Bowen with the child Angus uh, while the sun is standing still in the sky, which in my view is a clear description of the winter solstice uh, illumination of the chamber of Newgrange. So you have the monument pretty much dedicated to the sun god, uh, and perhaps it was a case that they were coming back. You have a legend at Douth mm. of a king commanding all the men of Ireland to come and build him the Monument of Douth at a time when there was a cattle moraine or, you know, a, a cattle disease or famine, which resulted in there being only one bull and seven cows left in Ireland. And I'm now, retrospectively, I mean, I, I, I made a, a serious attempt to uh, disentangle that myth in my Island of the Setting Sun book, which is the first book uh, mm. that I published, uh, which 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 was uh, with Richard Moore. Um, and, and I didn't know this at the time. And I'm now wondering whether, just like the Justinian plague, 
you know, that you see plagues arising in times of shortage and in times of poor growth. Uh, and I'm now looking at that myth going, oh, is that is that maybe what was happening at the time that there was this darkening? And what 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 are the men looking for? The only thing they ask for uh, to build the monument, they ask the king for endless day. Mm. And the king's sister, who's a powerful sorceress or druidess, casts a spell on the sun, making it stand still in the sky. And they build wow, the monument fascinating. endless day. And then the king and his sister commit incest together, mm. causing the spell to be broken. And the darkness comes upon the place. And the men of Ireland say to the king, well, since night has come and day is gone, clearly, uh, we are abandoning this task. And forevermore, this place shall be known as Dua, uh, D-U-B-H-A-D-H, which is the Irish for darken, d- darkness or darkening. Mm, wow. That is where doubt gets its name from this wow. darkness that descended upon the place during its construction. You know, and I'm now looking at that uh, myth saying, right, so you have the megalomaniac king who commits incest with his sister. We know from genetics that there's a guy buried in Newgrange whose parents are brother and sister. And he's clearly able to, if not command, at least, you know, entice apparently all the men of Ireland and say what the women were doing. Apologies to the women. As I say, I always say they were probably doing something much more important, like feeding themselves, you know, like absolutely like, yeah. you know, looking after everything, you know, like making everything happen, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm now looking at that, wondering whether, you know, that whole uh, uh, myth doesn't describe this event that is apparent in the dendrochronology, that there were, there was a darkness, there was a failure, there was some sort of a plague uh, which would have caused a lack of uh, food um, uh, and that these are exactly the sort of circumstances in which somebody, I think there are parallels for this around the world. These are exactly the sort of challenging circumstances in which we put our faith in leaders. Yeah. We say, Do you know, there's a guy down there in the Boyne Valley who says he has the solution that if we build this great monument, you know, um, that, you know, it'll make things all right. And I wonder whether Newgrange's association with Dagda in particular uh, isn't an indication that they were trying to appease the sun god. You know, that if they, if they said, let's build the largest monuments that, that have ever been seen um, and let's orient them in such a way as they point to the, the weakest and lowest point of the sun, Douth, as a passage pointing to winter sunset and Newgrange, of course, famously has a passage uh, illuminated or a chamber illuminated yeah. by the rising sun on the shortest days. You know that this wasn't some grand effort to call back the sun, to call back its brilliance and its warmth uh, and to restore uh, pli- climate normality to the area. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's a degree of speculation here, but uh, it is founded uh, on uh, the science, the things that we know, it, it, those uh, tree ring events are, uh, I think, indisputable. You know, it's not it, just one sample, you know, saying the trees, the tree rings are narrow in this part. You know, there's a correlation across the spectrum. Um, and and, and, and uh, these six events have been compared with uh, tree rings in other parts of the world and also with the ice cores. And they're seeing the same events happen in different parts of the world. It's, in other words, it's not a localized event. It's something major that's happening, it, it, probably in the atmosphere, leading to severe crisis, you know. Yeah, and it's also consistent. What you're saying is consistent to human behavior. So we could imagine something like that happening now This in this day. We're still... In terms of our, our psychology, we're still the same now as we pretty much as we, as we were back then, as far as we can tell. So technology was different, society was different, etc. But that, those emotions of fear, of, of worship, you know, that these types of things were, were similar. So we can really imagine that happening. And I think that's where this theory has, a, 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 there's something to it for sure. Uh, and it's also I don't I'm not sure if I'm more fascinated by it or if I'm more terrified by it, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, well, I think uh, the science helps to dispense with the romance, not dispense with it. Don't get me wrong. It's not like you're sweeping the whole romantic notion aside. At the end of the day, we've already spoken about that spiritual aspect and that liminal aspect, which is a thing that is a more subjective area. The science is less subjective, is much more objective. What does the science tell us? Well, it tells us these monuments were built around 5200, maybe 5300 for now. Um, and Douth might be earlier by a little bit because it was apparently the first one built. You know, the science tells us that there's a man buried in Newgrange whose parents were brother and sister, um, which is interesting because there's a story about Douth that says a king who commanded all the men of Ireland to come to the monument you know, mm. committed incest with his sister, um, causing uh, this magic of, you know, making the sun stand still to be broken. Um, uh, the science tells us that the the stones of Newgrange and Nouth came from long distances away. So that tells us of a very capable uh, society. Nobody, I think, can coordinate such a monumental construction effort in the Neolithic, remember, we're talking about a time when not only was there no technology, no, no, no phones and Facebook and the Internet and all that stuff, but 
uh, we're talking about a time when, I mean, how were these ideas communicated? You know, when a decision was made, yeah, we're going to build some of the largest monuments that have ever mm. been seen here in the Boyne Valley, but we need a huge workforce. How was that communicated? You know, mm. these these were uh, people who didn't just live in the local area. We're talking about the arrival of a population from different parts. The archaeologists have been saying this for a long time, that there's a regionality in terms of the arrival of the stones from faraway places. Some of the stones of Newgrange come from Clarehead, the large stones. Uh, some of the cobbles, the, the egg-shaped cobbles, come from Dundalk Bay. And then we're told the white quartz comes from all the way from Wicklow. So clearly, yeah. you know, there's an ability to communicate across uh, wide areas of, of landscape in a pre-technological era. I mean, that in itself is very impressive, you know. Um, so it's very impressive. And, and I feel like perhaps we're, we're I feel like we're missing something there. Like we're maybe underestimating the people a little bit, uh, whether we're underestimating them or we're underestimating um I'm I'm using the word technology, but what whatever it is that maybe not even technology, just I don't know, just the just the way society worked basically. Um, well, well, we know in even even into the modern age, we know the power of word of mouth. You know, yeah, like the things that pre social media, especially the things that spread like wildfire. You know, in in a place. Like here in Drahada, I remember, you know, as a child hearing about, you know, oh, such and such has died. And literally it spreads like wildfire and everybody knows because mm. by the time you say it to somebody, they say, oh, yeah, I heard, you know. Mm. Um, now, of course, the 1980s, we still had radio and television and telephones, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. but the power of that, you know, um, but I think we're seeing something of an extraordinary picture. And I don't think it necessarily coalesces or gels too easily with the picture as we had it a generation ago. The picture that we, as we had it a generation ago was, uh, had, certainly had gaps in it. You know, the, the, the picture was, well, clearly a lot of people built these big monuments. Um, we don't know exactly who they were, but pre-genetics, and the science of genetics has revealed much about prehistoric Ireland in the past decade or so. Um, we thought, by the way, um, just over 10 years ago, not that long ago, we believed that genetically the Irish population of the island now were largely descended from the pre-Neolithic uh, hunter-gatherers, the Mesolithic people who had, had arrived into Ireland at some point after the Ice Age. And genetics has blown that theory out of the sky because genetics tells us no. In fact, the Mesolithic hunter-gatherer population were uh, genetically diverse from the Neolithic population, the farmers who had arrived here around 6,000 years ago. And they were replaced by an incoming culture that we refer to as the Bell Beaker or the, the you know, the Beaker culture, the Bronze Age, the people who introduced bronze and metallurgy into Ireland, the Bronze Age culture. And in fact, it is from that culture that we are largely descended, a much later mm -hmm. than we than we had previously thought. So even looking at that span of prehistory from the Ice Age until the Bronze Age, the arrival of bronze, you're seeing a, a, a very interesting pattern, and this is all from genetics. Uh, the hunter-gatherer population of Ireland was insular, 
didn't have much contact with, for instance, the hunter-gatherer population of Britain at the time. Mm. The arrival of farming, which sweeps across Europe from Anatolia and Turkey, now it wasn't called Anatolia or Turkey back then, obviously, nor was mm. Ireland called Ireland back then. This but is true. This slow migration of farming across Europe had eventually reached Ireland around 6,000 years ago, but with a new community. It's not like the people who were there already had just suddenly decided, let's start farming. It arrives with a new people. And then you have an almost complete genetic replacement of those people. They largely disappear, though not completely. And this is the thing that's going to occupy me for the next while. Uh, it's going to be an important mm -hmm. part of my own research is that remnant of the Neolithic population. So you get all these modern people going, going to Newgrange at the solstice to honour my ancestors, you know. And actually, genetically, it's highly unlikely that you're related to the people who built Newgrange. But there is a possibility. In Britain, where there's a much larger data set, uh, they tell us that 90% of the Neolithic genetics were wiped out. And I just wonder what about the 10%. And it's probably broadly the same mm. for Ireland. Because remember, as much as we we think we're different from Britain and we're a different people and a different culture, in the Neolithic, we were pretty much the same culture. Yeah. I have no of doubt course. people who built Brunabonia and especially the late Neolithic phase there uh, were uh, at least in communication with, if not part of the community that built the Stonehenge uh, and Durrington Walls uh, landscape, you know. Um, so we we have this new picture that has emerged over the past decade uh, uh, where, you know, there's hunter-gatherers who are basically, re it, it seems not necessarily replaced, but certainly um, overwhelmed by the arrival of farming and who, it probably had to adopt farming practices to survive. And then you have the arrival of the beaker culture, which appears to bring with it disaster for the people who built Newgrange because they die or they disappear. And very, very recently, as in, in the past few weeks, uh, a scholar in Britain who found evidence of a plague in the teeth of two Neolithic people suggests that that's maybe at least in part what happened to the the people who built the great monuments of the neolithic that perhaps uh, there's a name on it um there's a name on and it's a it's like a latinized name i can't remember it but it's a plague basically it's a bit like the black death and i'm wondering whether i'm only speculating here i'm wondering yeah. whether now that the beaker folk had some immunity to this plague and that they mm -hmm. maybe introduced it into Ireland and Britain uh, and that the existing farming populations there didn't have resistance uh, to uh, that pathogen. And that was the difference. Because remember, uh, what I haven't told you is that the Bronze Age uh, beaker folk have their origins in the Eurasian steppe, the what we call the Pontic steppe, uh, wow! Huge, vast area uh, of 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 grasslands north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, um, and that they had migrated slowly again westwards across Europe, eventually finding themselves to the islands, uh, Britain and Ireland. Um, and it, so, if you were to ask a geneticist to describe the people who built Newgrange, they would tell you that they're shorter that they're olive-skinned, they've darker skin, and that they were blue-eyed. And if you ask them to describe the beaker folk, they'll say they were taller, 
fairer skinned and fairer haired. So there's this genetic genetic divergence, two two very different uh, people. Wow. I know which one I come from anyway. <laughs> well, I, I definitely, I think I definitely look like a beaker folk, you know, <laughs> you know, and it's funny, isn't it? When you look at the, that uh, diversity among, I mean, of course, Ireland has a huge, um, uh, you know, non-national population these days. Uh, uh, if, if you look at Irish people, you will see tall, thin, fair-haired, fair-skinned folk. And you'll also see these very dark-skinned, dark-haired folk. And you say, wow, you know, we're, we're, what is the genetic origin of, of these people who can be so uh, diverse in their appearance? You know, absolutely. I've I, I haven't I've never done those genetic tests, but I, I would something I've always wanted to do. But what's interesting also is that having spoken to um, Molly about the Irish language recently, she was saying that there's some very similar grammatical structures, we'll say, to those Eurasian uh, languages, um, which is fascinating, really, you know, just in terms of, of, of the origin of it and all of these little pieces of the puzzle that you can't say for sure for definite that there's a connection but there seems to be these connecting pieces between as you say those people migrating migrating through um, it, um something that's kind of come to mind is because a lot of what you said over which is just incredible information about you know and and backed up by genetics backed up by all sorts of different science is there any questions or curiosities about all of this to, that you think might be we might be able to answer soon with with more science or is there anything else that we think that we could unlock um with either the advancement the further advancement of science or simply maybe the the funding to actually research it um well i think we've actually probably already touched on some of those things so for instance i think we are getting closer to answering the question about the genetic heritage of, of the Irish people. Uh, now, that's going to be varied and wide, because don't forget, there's a huge Viking influence you yeah. know, in the ninth and 10th centuries. Uh, there's, 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 a, there's probably a larger propensity or a larger proportion of Scandinavian DNA in the modern Irish population. Uh, and don't forget the, the, the arrival of the Normans and, you know, um, uh, and the British you know, and, mm. and the possibility of all, all sorts of possibilities there, because remember that in the past few centuries, um, I'm 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 quite sure that many an Irish person had an affair with many a British soldier, and that uh, yeah, that pregnancies would have been concealed. Uh, you know, mm. that, that would have been uh, you know devastating to especially a woman, and especially a woman who's who's say a, a Catholic Irish woman. Who has yeah. an affair with a with, with, with an Englishman? You know, yeah. th those things would have been would have been hidden. Um, I think we're closer we're closer to a lot of things, but a lot of things still seem so far away. You know, I think we're a bit closer, thanks to genetics, to um, f uh, finding out where the well. I think we have. It's not that we're closer to it. I think we have quite a definitive answer now, where the people originated. You know, um. I don't think we're that much closer to uh, resolving the meaning, if any, of the megalithic art at Brunabonia, because it is flagrant, flag, flagrant, flag, there's a word I used in one of my books, uh, a phrase, mm -hmm. flagrantly 
fragrantly mm. abstract you know it's mm. almost like it's showing off it's like ah, you know here yeah. i am this beautiful and complex megalithic art here i am the triple spiral of uh, i dare you i dare you to try and guess what i mean you know yeah. whereas we have older megalithic art in iberia for instance that clearly depicts humans and animals it's like well if if we have this representative pictographic art what happened to bruno bonia were they all on mushrooms you know <laughs> um, you know possibly so, um where are oh what else yeah i i mean uh one of the big mysteries uh of irish prehistory has been when did the irish language establish itself in ireland mm. and believe it or not there was a a particular paradigm uh which the linguistic scholars and the scholars of of uh you know uh, old and middle irish and the scholars who've spent lifetimes translating manuscripts and and looking at the myths and legends and everything else had decided that the irish language came with the celts in the iron age but now the the uh, geneticists are saying hang on a second guys uh, there's something wrong with that picture. What's wrong with that picture? I'll tell you what's wrong with that picture. There's no large arrival of people in the Iron Age. Mm. We don't have much evidence for a large-scale arrival of people in the Iron Age. And we were told, wow. we were told in school that the Celts, the Celts, the Celts, these people were so important. Everything that came before the Celts were you know, uh, 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 grunting ignoramuses, you know, uh, no. Well, when you look at the Neolithic monuments, you can clearly see they weren't ignorant. Um, mm. And the geneticists are now arguing with the linguists. They're saying, no, uh, we actually think that the, lar the, the, the last large-scale arrival of people into Ireland was in the Bronze Age. And, and that's with, the, with, the, with these beaker people or, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, that excites me because... What it does is, if the if if the Irish language is becoming established in the Bronze Age, it reduces by one the number of different peoples between the arrival of the language and the monuments. So previously we had the Neolithic people who built the monuments, we had the Bronze Age culture who replaced them, and then we had the Celts who brought Irish. And you see, there is a difficulty. I've been looking at these myths for years, and I have been saying in in some cases the myths contain information that couldn't have been known when they were written down in the Middle Ages. So that indicates a survivability of myth about monuments and folklore about monuments over vast spans of time. And my argument has been, for instance, Dogda and Bowen mating at Newgrange, that that is a clear description in poetic or mythological, yeah. allegorical language of the winter solstice event at Newgrange. Yeah. But then the archaeologists tell us that Newgrange became sealed up around the beginning of the Bronze Age, that it was, uh, its interior was sealed off for 4,000 years until 1699 AD. And then, and, and then you, you, you read something that was written in, you know, the 12th uh, or 13th century when it was apparently still sealed up and it appears to describe this event, you know. Um, but so... Um, my point being, uh, in a very long-winded way of getting round to the point, the point is that now it seems to be much more likely, actually, that what I'm saying is true. Because if the language arrived in the Bronze Age, 
we know that the Bronze Age people interacted with the Neolithic people. The Neolithic mm. people weren't dead and gone when the Beaker culture arrived. There was, uh, it has been suggested that one of the things that could have happened is that the, the, the Bronze Age people who were armed with metal weapons, you know, whereas yeah. the Neolithic people were armed only with stone weapons, that the Bronze Age people could have killed, especially the men of the Neolithic and, you know, uh, and taken the women as, as wives and uh, and thereby diluted the, the, the gene pool. But I'm excited about the fact that for the first time in my lifetime, it's been suggested that the Irish language, you know, uh, I don't know what the correct terminology is, bedded down, established itself, became widespread. I don't know what exactly the terminology is in the Bronze Age versus the Iron Age, um, because as I say, that uh, Bronze Age people almost certainly interacted with the people who had built the monuments. And even those, when you ask a modern scholar, what language did the people who built Newgrange speak? First of all, it has to be said, clearly, there was a complexity of language because you cannot, in my view, you cannot organize a giant project like that with so many no aspects to it without a reasonably complex language, you know? Of course. Um, but what did they speak? What language did they speak? They spoke Pi, Proto-Indo-European. Mm. It's... Whatever that means. Um, um, imagine, it really, the, the implications of how old, it, you know, if if that's true, how, re how really old the Irish language is, that would be just incredible. Um, incredible. Yeah. Um, I saw I've seen it through some of your your content online on YouTube, which I thoroughly recommend people check out. There's I mean, there's some you I your depth of knowledge is so uh, insane that I we there's so much we just didn't touch on so much. Um, but with within um, your YouTube channel, I really recommend checking that out because there's just some fascinating topics um, and you explain things so well um also just on on a different separate point your writing is is really really brilliant i really enjoyed reading your writing and and um so that is that is something that i also recommend people should should be should be reading and should be checking out yeah um, and they can get signed copies of my books on the mythical ireland website i should say that that if you order through the website i will personally sign the amazing the yeah. Amazing. Um, some people have, have spoken to me in recent times about how the sunset in Ireland is is special um, in terms of the way the sky lights up, the colours of the sky, um, as you say, this land of the setting sun. There's my, my, my point in this and my question is, you know, from these people who lived in Ireland thousands and thousands of years ago, they obviously had an appreciation, much higher appreciation for for things like the setting sun, uh, whether that was because of a great necessity, whether they needed it because of a, a cataclysmic event or whether they just enjoyed it because of its beauty and what it meant to them. They worshipped it like a god, as you say. Um, but it, it makes me think, how can we how can we today the people who live on this island learn a little bit from them and maybe get a bit more from our experience here today um whether that might 
what can we learn from them in terms of where is there places we can go or things that we can do to um get the most out of this countryside that we're or this island that we're living on what would you recommend or where would you recommend we go or what would we what, what should we what should we be doing oh um well talk about a, a big question um <laughs> <laughs> and the quick answer is I don't know actually. Yeah. Um I mean yeah, I mean first of all uh, how many people actually have experienced a the, the observing of a sunrise or a sunset. How many people have done that without the phone in front of their face taking pictures mm. of it or live streaming it or taking a video of it, you know? I mean mm. we're, we're 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 so distracted by all this, you know. Um so I think that's actually one of the simple things that people can do is to go into your, it doesn't, you don't have to cross the country, you know, go into a local landscape somewhere in your area or region. I mean, if you're in Dublin, you know, that's going to be probably in the Wicklow mountains, or, you know, if you want to take a spin out into Meath, into the Boyne Valley, um, for other people, there are things much closer at hand. Um, you, you see, I, th I think we've, social media has been great to an extent and it has been disastrous to an extent, you know, mm. we're seeing now a habit of people announcing beautiful places on Instagram and then everybody else arriving at these places and taking selfies Destroying and, it. and yeah. fecking off again, you know, mm. but go to a place, keep your phone in your pocket, go out this evening or whenever you get the chance and say to yourself, do you know what? I am going to spend a couple of hours just watching a sunset. I'm going to watch it go down. I'm going to watch those colors and hues as they change. I'm going to watch whatever clouds there are changing in shape and color. As the... I'm going to listen very carefully to the sounds. I'm going to, I, I'm going to pay attention to the flora and fauna around me. I'm going to admire every bumblebee and butterfly and, and insect that I see and every flower and plant and tree. You know, I'm going to identify um, or I'm going to try to identify what trees they are. Listen to the last of the bird song and watch as the stars begin to come out. But do all that with your phone in your pocket, uh, preferably on silent. And don't yeah. let it distract you. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is the closest that you can get to appreciating, you know, how it has been for humans on this island for the past 10,000 years. You know, that's the closest thing that you can get to, uh, you, you, you know, an experience of what it might have been like pre-modern civilization, pre-modern infrastructure, pre before all those dramatic human changes to the landscape. Um, and let it sink in, you know. Uh, these things are hugely beneficial for mental health, you know. But yeah. we don't. We don't. People in a housing estate might, you know, go out the front door and have a look at the sun setting over the rooftop and take a picture and then go back in 30 seconds later. That That's not an experience, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's, it, there's so much we, technology has, as you say, has been incredibly fantastic, but Im, imagine trying to organize like let's just say we were take all of this technology we, we had no access to to whatsapp to email to slack whatever we might be using and try and organize a project which involves thousands of people yeah now you could say that we don't have the technology to do that 
uh, or we don't have the ability, maybe the human capability of doing that because we're so rely, we rely so much, and obviously it's great as we should rely so much on on technology. But the, there's those because of of the technology that we have, we've lost, I think, some aspects of of that connection to nature oh, and to uh, who we really are. Un- undoubtedly, our our experiences. Uh, we spend so much time with technology now that are even when we are out in nature, we have, as I say, the phone in front of our faces, you know, and I get that as a photographer, you know, I have captured, you know, I've spent 20 years capturing images, dramatic images of the landscape, which are featured in all my books, you know, yeah, I understand that, but I think I have also been able to, to go there with camera and tripod to capture my images and then just to appreciate what's going on. I don't feel always the immediate need to share that or the immediate need to record it. You know, it's, it's like the, the best of memories that you have in your life. If you think about it genuinely, the best experiences that you had were probably quite spontaneous uh, and probably didn't involve technology you know and probably involved an interaction with a loved one or you know being in a particular place at a particular time oh do you remember we sat on the balcony in spain and watched that huge thunderstorm overhead that sort of stuff you know yeah um i often think about something that um you know the whole memento mori and, and this kind of uh remember that you you will die in this kind of aspect of thinking about maybe 20 minutes before your death and thinking back to what what things we would remember and i did the calculation once in my head um of maybe you're on using technology on your phone or whatever it might be let's say two to three hours a day it varies for different people some people might be more some people might be less but if you do that calculation you live to whatever you know 70 something 80 something that's it's going to be around eight nine years of your life and then I, I always have this specific example in my head, but I don't think with 15 minutes left of me to go thinking back of these beautiful memories in, in life, as good as Breaking Bad was, I don't think that would be one of the things that I would be, you know, truly grateful for in that moment. You know, as you said, it'll be the shared moments between people. It'll be whatever a walk along the beach you're remembering a, a very beautiful place that you used to frequent um and we have to i really do think you're right we have to make sure that we don't completely lose ourselves and we make time for things like you know what what started this all off for you in the first place observing the stars um what whatever it might be i think that's really truly important um, and by the way through your work i think people can connect to that because by by researching, by learning more about prehistoric Ireland, where we're learning about a people who had a much greater connection to nature, and we can learn from that. Um, and I think, I think that's very important. Yeah, nature mm. and the cosmos. Yeah, I think they were very co- co- uh, cosmically uh, minded. You know, the, 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 yeah, I think that they understood. Uh, very keenly how the movements of the sky affect the earth you know and how in other words all what it's you know everything is part of something greater yeah cosmological or what i call the cosmic vision of the ancients you know that 
they knew, of course, it's plainly obvious to a pre-modern society. It's not so obvious to us today, because no matter what day of the year it is, we can walk into Aldi and pick up a sliced pan, except for when it's after being snowing heavily for the previous mm. days, and then Ireland's in crisis. Mm. But, you know, so we don't I, I don't, I don't think we just have the same appreciation. Back then, that movement of the sun up and down the horizon and up and down the sky uh, had very obvious dramatic effects on an ongoing basis on the landscape, not just in terms of what was growing and what wasn't growing, but even in terms of the migration of animals and the appearance of certain birds at certain times of the year, some coming in winter, some coming in the summer. And that had a lovely beauty and probably an extraordinary majesty uh, and magical aspect to the people of prehistory. And of course, yeah, we've we've lost a lot of that. We want to explain everything, don't we? We want a rational explanation for everything now. It's like, is there an app for that? You know, what is that? Oh, there's an app for that. Yeah. Uh, how often do we actually meaningfully disengage from all yeah. of that and yeah. re-engage with the natural world? By the way, you might be surprised to hear it, and it's probably an entirely different discussion for another time. But they actually weren't that close to nature. Remember, these are people who cleared forest for farms. These are mm. the first people to introduce animal husbandry and crop husbandry. That is the beginning of where we say, this land is mine. I'm putting a fence around it. These are my crops, not yours. This is mm. the beginning of where we start to uh, imagine that we control the resources of the earth. Whereas pre previously, you know, as hunters and gatherers, we followed the food where it where it appeared seasonally. Now yeah. we were saying, no, the food's going to grow right here and I'm going to live right here and I'm going to build this monument, you know. Yeah. Uh, they just possibly weren't as close to nature as we imagined they were. You That's know? a very good point. Yeah. But, but uh, given their numbers, they only had a very limited effect on the natural environment whereas today we're all over the place you know we're yeah. like we're like a parasite in a way you know yeah 100 percent. anthony i i can't thank you for your time enough it's been just such a pleasure chatting about it. like as i said uh for anybody listening um you go to mythical ireland or or check it out on YouTube. There's so much content there. It's 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 really brilliant. And there's so many questions that we haven't spoken about that you can you can have answered there. Um so thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the time that you've given. And is there anything else, anywhere else that you would recommend people should should check you out or follow you? Oh yeah, well I'm I'm on Facebook. Uh, there's the Mythical Ireland Facebook page, and there's also a group called the Mythical Ireland Community. Um, oh, brilliant and i'm on instagram and mm. i'm on twitter but i i've uh, it's not i i'm a little bit less limited in my activity on twitter uh, mm. and of course yeah youtube which is great the website is a big resource as well there's a yeah. huge amount of information and photography and videos on there and uh, don't forget to sign up for the mailing list if you're on the website uh, and yeah i might just say to people if you want to support mythical ireland uh, consider becoming a patron because I last week uh, finished uh, working as a full-time journalist. I have been mm -hmm. working in newspapers for the best part of 30 years uh, full-time. Wow. And I'm now uh, going full-time with Mythical Ireland. So I uh, would appreciate if there were a few people out there who thought, yeah, I I'd like to support this uh, work. Uh, and by the way, 
probably probably a nice way to finish would be to say that all of the stuff we've been talking about occupied about one page of the history book that I read when I was in primary school. You know, yeah. there was this one page about prehistory. You know, yeah. we, we we came through a school system that because, of course, the education system was largely controlled by the Catholic Church. Everything yeah. in terms of Irish history begins with St. Patrick, you know, it's like yeah. everything before that is no, it's not. It's irrelevant. It's pagan. It's dark. You know, it's murky. You know, we don't want to know about that. And actually, I, you know, I realize now that that page, that single page of that history book has now become a huge volume. You know, um, we know thanks to thanks to all the wonderful experts out there. Uh, we now know such a huge amount about pre-Christian and prehistoric Ireland. And uh, I think it's wonderful. And it's a part of our history that is not recorded in writing, uh, but is recorded in so many other ways. And it's been a fascinating exploration for me. And long may it last 24 years now, 25 years next year. So I'll have to do something big to celebrate that. Mm. order of a century a hundred percent and to be honest with you i've only recently been getting into or become more curious about this so uh, i'm to be honest looking forward to the, the things that i discover over the next few years in in reading and and following you so um yeah keep keep us up to date with all the latest happenings and and look forward to to seeing what what you're working on next thank okay. you so much anthony thanks very much for your time and may it be an enriching journey for you 